Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Styrofoam is a petroleum-based product that is manufactured by adding a hydrofluorocarbon to a polystyrene. 
It takes over 500 years for styrofoam to fully decompose. It was invented in 1944. The first full natural composition of styrofoam will be complete in about 420 years. There have been studies that suggest that certain types of worms can eat and process styrofoam, but these results are preliminary, and there have not been any large-scale projects aimed at using them to reduce the amount of styrofoam in the world today. Any time that styrofoam is created, there is more styrofoam in the world than there was before. On a human timescale, all styrofoam can do is accrue. On a geologic timescale, it may as well have never existed. The styrofoam container that Raphael Muslani had brought me, full of breakfast foods from a nearby diner, was now empty. It would spend the next 500 years never containing anything ever again. It had been a long time since the styrofoam had been filled by the breakfast at the diner, but I wasn't sure how long. The styrofoam container had been the last thing that had happened to me. It might as well have been a plank second ago. The styrofoam was the last thing before this thing. This thing being Eliza Schultz walking alongside Lucy, the largest cat in the world, on the longest leash in the world, to our new destination. Raphael Muslani had written a story that featured styrofoam before. This wasn't surprising. There are about 100,000 words in the average book. Styrofoam was sure to be the subject of conversation eventually. There is a website called the Library of Babel that uses code to contain every possible combination of letters. When set to generate random English words indefinitely, the phrase, Raphael Muslani wrote a story containing the word styrofoam called Street Lamp Folly, occurs on a page that it calls title LFD, space DUFO, space F, period, page 96. The relevant passage reads, Initialized, cliffhangs, ectoderms, microanatomy, supernaturalist Raphael Muslani wrote a book containing the word styrofoam called Street Lamp Folly. Destrixes, seaweed, chamfrain, oversized, unprovisioned, noisiness, hypnology. The word that it generated immediately before Raphael Muslani is supernaturalist, which feels meaningful because of his penchant for writing stories about aliens and the absurd, but any poignancy is mere happenstance. Muslani has probably used all of those words in a story at some point, but Street Lamp Folly is the name of the novel in which he uses the word styrofoam. Destrixes are the splittings of the ends of hair. A chamfrain is a piece of armor meant to protect a horse's head. Street Lamp Folly is the least known published work of airport novelist Raphael Muslani. Street Lamp Folly is the least known work by Raphael Muslani because it purports not to be by Muslani at all. It is by John L. Morganson. Out of the three Muslani novels that came out that year, it is the only one to be written under a pseudonym. The novel did not sell well and was met with fairly negative reviews, so Muslani never publicly revealed that he was John L. Morganson. In fact, nobody on earth knows that Raphael Muslani is John L. Morganson. I know that Raphael Muslani is John L. Morganson because I am the perfect reader of Raphael Muslani. I understand Street Lamp Folly perfectly, which is how I know that it is a Raphael Muslani novel. I have never confirmed this with Raphael Muslani, and I will never need to. Likewise, Muslani knows that Eliza Schultz knows that he is John L. Morganson, author of Street Lamp Folly. That is the nature of our arrangement. Ectoderms are the outermost layers of cells in an embryo. 
Street Lamp Folly is the fictional autobiography of John L. Morganson and the alien that is communicating to him directly through the electricity in his brain. John is the one typing the words, but the alien is just as involved in telling the story as he is, so the novel functions as two autobiographies in one. The novel concerns the night that he accidentally encountered the alien and the resulting relationship that they have with one another. The novel begins purely from John's perspective, as he describes the day that his life changed forever. John is a sci-fi novelist by trade. He had just finished a chapter that had been giving him some trouble, and decided to take a walk through the neighborhood to clear his head before dinner. Having walked a considerable distance, he decides to take a break under a street lamp. He leans on the street lamp for a few moments, thinking about where his novel will go next, when he begins to feel a strange sensation. In order to explain what is happening to him, John offers a description of the creatures. They call themselves Phenomgrapons, and are a miniature but highly advanced civilization that became stranded on Earth when the meteor that they lived on broke up upon entering Earth's atmosphere. The Phenomgrapons resided in small, smooth, curved residences on the meteor, similar in appearance to the streetlight that John was standing under. The Phenomgrapons took shelter inside of the street lamps while trying to find a longer-term solution to becoming stranded on Earth. The Phenomgrapons are more advanced than humans in some important ways. They have finely attuned electroreception and electrogenesis, meaning they can detect electric fields and generate electric current. This means that they can control the flow of electricity around them using only their pre-existing biology. They use pure electricity as a biological energy source, which allows them to subsist entirely off the energy produced by the street lamp. Their precise control over these fields also allows them to communicate directly with a human brain when in close proximity, since neurons firing are utilizing a sort of electricity. The phenomgrapons are highly intelligent, so understanding which neurons need to be fired in which ways in order to communicate a message to a human is rudimentary to them. They can do so effortlessly. Though John is the one who gives us a description of these creatures, it is unclear what it means for him to be the one to do so. Everything that John has learned about the phenomgrapons was through direct electric stimulation of the brain by a phenomgrapon. What is the difference between John relaying the information himself and the phenomgrapon that told him this information relaying it through John? The Chinese Room is a thought experiment in which an individual is placed in a room with a bookshelf full of reference material. Notes are slipped under the door in Chinese, and the individual is tasked with responding to the notes in Chinese. The individual in the room does not speak Chinese. Instead, the reference material provides perfect answers to the questions provided, so perfectly that any native speaker would be sure that they were conversing with a fellow native speaker. It is unclear to what extent John is telling the story, and to what extent he is the individual in the Chinese room. A phenomgrapon named Michi descends the street lamp and buries themselves deep into John's hair. They immediately attempt to communicate with John through his synapses. These intrusive thoughts cause John to believe that he is having a break with reality. Understanding this, Michi sends brain signals to calm John down. John is able to understand that this calm is artificially generated, and that something he doesn't understand is influencing him. He tries to be scared, but is unable to. Michi will not let him feel scared. He attempts to feel scared that he isn't able to feel scared, but this fails as well. All neurons that could fire in order to induce fear in him are being negated by Michi. 
This negation continues until Michi is able to explain the situation and John is able to maintain the calm on his own. Michi takes a keen interest in John's career as a sci-fi novelist. He is already concerned with the topics of time and space, and this provides an easy way to make things understandable for him. Through John, Michi begins working on a novel detailing the story of themselves and their civilization. Gradually, the feeling that John is being influenced by an outside source dissipates. At first, every electrical impulse felt like a communication to him, like he was being handed a piece of paper with information on it. Eventually, the stories he is writing feel like they are inspired in the same way as any other sci-fi novel he has written. It feels like he is drawing from the usual well of process and inspiration. Neurons were going to fire to create the ideas that go into the novel. The only difference was that Michi was deciding which ones would fire. It wasn't as though John was purposefully choosing which neurons would fire before this, and so the end result was the same. After detailing some backstory about how Phenomgrapon society operates and how it has adjusted since the meteor fell to Earth, Michi uses John to get to the heart of the matter. He has John write the phrase, There is a transporter the size of a pea. It fell into the ocean. This communication had to be facilitated both ways. Michi had to come to understand the concept of a P through John's neurons. We have sophisticated ways of detecting the transporter, but they are lost now. It can move any amount of matter through any amount of space. Michi notices something interesting in the patterns that result in him relaying this idea to John. The parts of the brain that process the concepts of teleporter and can move any amount of matter are the same pathways that John utilizes when he is writing fiction. That pathway is well-tread. John is a sci-fi novelist. It is clear that they are on the wrong path. These concepts are fictional to John and to all humans. The technology that the Phenomgrapons could use to leave Earth in favor of a more natural habitat was irrevocably lost, and no human technology was analogous. This revelation causes Michi to despair, causing John to feel despair with them. John feels an intense melancholy about what could have been had this teleporter not been lost. He is unable to understand why his own writing has caused him to feel so wistful. The phrase, there is a teleporter the size of a pea, it fell into the ocean, appears on page titled ghcc.x, page 54 of the Library of Babel. Quote, In Pearl Bowers Schwitz, gratulations, there is a transporter the size of a pea, it fell into the ocean, monoculars, diplopia, tiglic rulers, rebiting, depolymerized. Depolymerized being the past tense of what happens during the degradation of styrofoam. In 500 years, the currently existing styrofoam on Earth will have depolymerized. Michi gives up on the idea of transporting the Phenomgrapons to a new home using human technology. He uses his control over John's neurons to convince him to work on a way to discover the transporter in the ocean. The ocean is vast, yes, but the transporter is putting out some strong signals that the Phenomgrapons know how to read. They aren't signals that human devices are tuned to pick up on, but Michi thinks it would be possible to build such a device. They start assembling the supplies necessary in order to detect the transporter in the ocean. This is where the word styrofoam is mentioned. It'll probably end up in the Pacific garbage patch eventually, John says. It's an island made entirely of trash. It's where all of the metal and plastic and styrofoam ends up when it gets dumped in the water. 
this sentence appears on title NFCGMKSV XLNDRISL, page 261 of the Library of Babel. Preterhuman surveillance, myelinitic earthlight amations, Lebechios, Whitlow, Seconal. It's an island made entirely of trash. It's where all of the metal and plastic and styrofoam ends up when it gets dumped in the water. Abdicant slaws, lady likenesses, confessors, degust, sparky usurp, pretermission. Preterhuman meaning something that is beyond what is human. Pretermission meaning to leave out or to pass over something. After some months of engineering, John and Michi finally create a device that Michi says is capable of leading them to the transporter. The only thing that is left to do is to travel to the middle of the Pacific Ocean and hunt it down. However, John quickly discovers that getting out to the middle of the vast ocean and moving around on one's own accord is not something that is easily accomplished. This pretermission sets them back an untold amount of time. John informs Michi that he doesn't know how he is going to get this part of the mission done. After many more months of attempting to make arrangements, everything seems hopeless. They have the device, but no way to get out into the ocean. John can feel Michi give up. Maybe the project had been hopeless this entire time. Maybe they were stuck on Earth forever, and the best thing to do would be to head back to the street lamp. Eventually, John stops hearing the Phnom Pragon at all. He brushes his hand over his head, feeling around for Michi, and finds nothing. Had Michi gone back to the street lamp? Had they blended into John's head somehow? Were they always a product of John's imagination? And what is the difference? The book ends, offering no solution. I understood why the book didn't sell well. People who buy sci-fi novels in airports don't want an ambiguous ending. They want to know the truth. More specifically, they want to know that Michi was in fact real, because otherwise, this story occurs entirely in John L. Morganson's head. The story occurs inside of John L. Morganson's head regardless. In the story, he is the author, and the neurons firing inside of his head are generating the words on the page. In real life, John L. Morganson is Raphael Muslani, who is doing the same thing but with real neurons and real paper. The concept that some fictions are realer than others is a result of our suspicion of disbelief, and it is arbitrary. But readers of airport novels make arbitrary choices. Night had fallen again as Lucy and I approached the outskirts of a small city. The lights were warm and inviting against the cool night sky. Lucy pulled on the leash in front of me, directing me enthusiastically toward the lights. The sidewalks were well lit with street lamps. I couldn't see people out on the streets, but the lights gave the impression that the city was inhabited. Lucy and I walked towards the city. The phrase in the Library of Babel. Lucy and I walked toward the city. Unenviable, reillumined, non-documentary billet. Title VRILGRWYASQ.OL, page 36. Reillumined, non-documentary billet. The Diary of Eliza Schultz. The street lamps grew brighter. Lucy and I walked towards the city. Mm -hmm.